0: Good, okay, we are in the book of Ruth, and uh, what I want to do right now is I'm going to pray, and we've got a lot of stuff to get to work on, so we'll pray, and then uh, see what God does. So, God, right now we just commit our time in your hands, and we need your help, we need your assistance. God, we just recognize that your word um, is what you use to create faith in our hearts. It's your word that you use to open our eyes to see, and, and yet, God, there's an element to that that... I can't do, none of us can do, only you can do. We can't open blind eyes. We can't raise the dead. You do that. You can do that. You have power to do that. You have authority to do that. And God, so any ability that is given to us to be able to do that has been entrusted to us by you. But we recognize you as a source of all that. So we pray, God, that today this would be more than just simply learning scripture, more than just simply learning about information. God, we pray that this would be revelation that would bring about a change of our hearts that would open our eyes to see the beauty of jesus god so like the song that we just sang that you're beautiful that those those lyrics would actually have meaning to them and purpose to them and and not just simply be words that we just mouth or words that we sing but god that they would have substance and content that we would actually see you as beautiful that we would love you because you're a beautiful god so we just commit this morning in your hands we pray that you would be glorified And the things that we talk about. we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're new here, we've been going through a series in the book of uh, Ruth. Uh, We've come to chapter 4 right now. We've got about two more studies left in this today and the next week. We're going to be done. And then uh, following that, we're going to be having a special guest speaker. He's going to be coming the first week of October. He's a good friend of mine. His name is Balaj. He's actually a, uh, a pastor and a teacher, a church planner guy, a um, friend of mine from um, Hungary. He's actually born and raised in Hungary. He uh, met a gal that grew up here in the Central Coast, and they got married, and they've got three beautiful little babies, two of which uh, God's given them the ability to, um, to make, and the third of which is. One they just adopted a few weeks ago. She's a beautiful little gypsy baby. And so uh, uh, he's going to be here. It's awesome. They're an amazing family. Uh, Belage is late 20s, early 30s. Actually, I think he might be like early 30s. And uh, he's a great guy. He loves Jesus. Uh, he's got a lot of great things to share with us. And I think it'll be a real blessing. So you don't want to miss that. And then... The week after that, which is the second week of October, we're actually going to be starting a brand new series that will take us longer than a year to accomplish, to go through. Uh, We're going to be starting a brand new series in the Gospel of Mark. So I'm pumped about that. Hopefully you guys are too. It's going to be a good time really taking a look at, studying the life of Jesus in a whole fresh new light. And uh, so it should be a good time. So if anything be in prayer, that all that would go smooth in preparation, getting ready for that, and uh, as we launch out, and that a lot of good things would happen. So uh, hopefully you guys have Ruth open. What I want to do real quick is I want to um, jump into this, talk a little bit about uh, the people of Israel and how this story is significant, important. Um, the people of Israel are a very important group of people, the Jewish people, and the Jewish people are interesting in that uh, they are a people that actually root their history In a larger history than themselves. In other words, they're a group of people that identify who they are today based upon a narrative or or a storyline that they came out of. Ask any Jew today what is the most significant, definitive moment in your people's history. All of them, probably all of them, I think most of them uh, would actually, whether they're you know Orthodox or whether even if they're secular, they would probably most of them all say that the number one. Thing that God had done in their life, the number one thing that had happened in their history, the number one thing that had defined them was the exodus. In other words, when God took this group of people that were slaves in Egypt, pulled them out of Egypt, rescued them out of Egypt by providing a deliverer and made them a nation and then brought them into a brand new land. That was a very important part. And one of the reasons why trying to find some sort of larger narrative than ourselves is important is because... Really, at the end of the day, without a larger narrative for us to anchor ourselves into, we feel lost. It's one of the reasons why people try to figure out their roots. They try to figure out where they came from. They try to figure out who they are. They want to understand a little bit about their family history. It's why, you know, there's this this kind of sense of feeling lost when you don't know who you are or where you came from. Or when you discover something like maybe if you didn't know your parents and you found out your parents did something in a certain way, or their character, or their behavior was nuanced in some way, and you kind of find out you've got characteristic traits like that, it almost, like, it almost allows you to realize, like, ah, that's where I get that from. In other words, it, it, it allows you to attach into a larger story. The Bible is written like that. The Bible is actually one big, massive, what we would call meta-narrative, one big, massive story, or uh, narrative of redemption but throughout the whole Bible are all these sort of mini-series, all these little mini-stories all throughout the Bible that sort of are themselves little mini-stories of redemption. All throughout the Bible. And every single one of these mini-series or mini-stories are meant to be stories that tap into the larger story of what God's doing. The book of Ruth's like that. It's one of the reasons why I think it, the book is such a beautiful book. People love Reading the book, love talking about the book, love thinking about the book, is because there's this beautiful story of redemption. Where here's a young woman who has lost everything. She has absolutely nothing going for her. And then yet there's this person from the outside, like a deliverer. He actually is a deliverer, he's what's called a redeemer. He comes in and he purchases uh, the means and the rights to be able to restore her and to reestablish her, to bear children with her. And it's this beautiful story reason why it's so beautiful is because it taps into the larger narrative of all the rest of the people of Israel. So with that being said, one of the things that we'll notice is that when the people of Israel came out of Egypt as a larger nation, God brought them into the land of Israel. And when God brought them into the land of Israel, he says, all the property that is as far as your eye can see and as far as your feet can take you, God says, I'm giving that property to you. It's yours. But God says, the reality is, is it actually belongs to me. I own it. I own the whole earth. But I will give to you, I will gift to you, parcels of property, parcels of land. So you will be stewards over it. You don't own it. You can't lay claim or lay right to it. And therefore, God says, when you have and what you have, I want you to treat it with, you know, with, I want you to take good care of it. I want you to cultivate it. I want you to use the land to, you know, raise cattle or to raise oxen or to raise what you know or or to plant crops or agricultural purposes whatever god says whatever you do use the land in such a way that would actually cultivate a good life for yourself for your children for your children's children and for your children's great-grandchildren all the way down for generation to generation to generation that you would have a legacy an ongoing legacy to build upon itself and you'd have a good life living in the land that I'll be your God, your people, will de- your children will delight in me, grandpas will be good grandpas to tons of grandkids, and generation after generation after generation will be delighted to live in the land. That's the life that God says I want you to have. Problem is, if is sin entered, problem is, is that people became greedy, problem was was that people didn't listen to God, they didn't respect God, they didn't honor God, they took matters in their own hands, they didn't listen to the life that God, or the, listen to the laws that God had given to them so that they would have life. And what had happened was you had a lot of backbiting, a lot of murder, a lot of difficulty, hardship, people thinking and living after themselves alone. And what had happened was, sometimes people would fall into debt, people would lose things that um, God had given to them. And as a result of that, God actually created something in the law that said, if, for example, you have a piece of property, and you lose that piece of property, God says, I want to create an item in the law that allows you to get that piece of property back. So, if you, for example, bought a house on a big piece of property, 60 acres, and for some reason, uh, you know, one of your family members gets very sick, and the amount of bills and money that you have to pay out to help your sick family family member get better uh, causes you to have to mortgage the farm. You can't keep the farm, you end up having to lose it. Now, even though you're homeless... Um, God says, I created a way so that you can actually get the farm back. So whoever buys the farm, you have always, for as long as you live, the opportunity to get that farm back. That's just not the way our culture works today, all right? If you have a house, you buy a house, you go and you, in the foreclosure, you lose your house, the bank takes the house. Uh, you can't go back like three years later and be like, hey, um, God said I can get my house back. Is that cool? Uh, they don't care. That's just not how it works in our culture. But in ancient Israel, that's how it worked. God says, you always have the right to get your property back. Now, if you didn't have the money to pay for it yourself, let's say you didn't have somebody that can loan you the money, you weren't able to pay, you weren't able to work hard enough to get enough money to pay for it yourself. God says, I'm going to make a provision that one of your relatives can. So someone in your family line can, who's got money, they can come in and they can redeem the property back. And get you back into the land. And help you be able to get secure back in the land again. God's. This is all part of God's way of saying. I want you to be able to know. That I'm God. I own the land. I own the property. And I care about your well-being. I truly want you to have life. So I will make a provision. That allows for a redeemer to come in. In order to help get you back into the land. Get you back onto your feet. So that you can once again live. It's God's desire. Do you know that? God actually intends for us to live. God intends for us to have life. Sometimes we don't believe that. Sometimes we actually believe the opposite. That God is not intending life for us. God wants to take life from us. God is upset. God is out to destroy us. In reality, it's the exact opposite. Is it possible that maybe there is an enemy that is constantly lying to us about God? Is it possible that there's an enemy that is constantly giving us an ongoing commentary on the side subtitles trying to fill in the blanks that is completely opposite as to what god is actually doing so what exactly what the bible says is that we do have an enemy and that the enemy is constantly whispering to us constantly giving us an ongoing commentary that's completely inconsistent with the heart and the attitude of our true god and that god actually does intend for us to have life just like god intended for the people of israel to have life and a destiny and and a heritage, and a legacy that would go on and on. And so with that, as we come to the book of Ruth, we see that this is a story of a woman, two women actually, that had lost everything. The older woman, her name was Naomi. She had a younger daughter-in-law, and both of them had lost everything. Both of them had become widowed. Both of them had no children, and both of them were women living in a predominantly male-dominated society, and they had no male over them to help them, to cover them, to get them Back on their feet. In fact, they had lost the farm. So they were basically, for all intents and purposes, homeless, uh, without any male in their life to help protect them, without any husband, father, dad, distant relative that they were aware of to help them move along in life. So in other words, they were deeply, greatly vulnerable to everything. And so God provided a way in the storyline so that these women can be taken care of. And the way they got it provided for this was through a man by the name of Boaz. Boaz comes on the scene. It turns out that Boaz also happens to be a relative. There's at least three types of things that have to go into play that makes a redeemer legitimate, all right? There's three things. I'll point them out to you. They're up on the screen. The first of which is that the redeemer has to have the right to redeem, meaning he has to be able to be a relative. The second thing, he has to have resources to redeem, meaning... Does he have the finances? Because any type of redemption process that's going on is always going to be a costly expense. There's a lot, uh, there's a lot that has to be paid out in order to bring about a legitimate uh, redemption. So does he have resources? Finally, does this person have the resolve? So you could be a relative. You could also have the resources, but you don't have the resolve. You, you, you know, you're, you're a tramp. You don't want to help out a family member. You're The type of person that just cares about yourself, You're not interested in helping out somebody else who's going through a tough time. You just think about yourself. And in Israel, this is a very shameful thing. So if you had the right, if you had the resources, but you didn't have the resolve, meaning you didn't want to do this, there was actually this interesting thing that they would do is uh, uh, they would come. The lady would take off her shoe or uh, sandal, kind of throw it at the dude. And uh, that was kind of a way of saying that you're a tramp. That's all you are. You're good for nothing. You're a loser. And uh, let that be Uh, your reputation from this point forward so it wasn't necessarily against god's law like you're not going to burn in hell because you didn't redeem but you wish you would all right and that was where what we're going to see in the story here even though boaz is the rightful type of redeemer we're going to find out that there's actually another guy that's a family member that's a little bit closer and more capable of bringing about redemption to the city or the story about ruth and naomi so with that being said, I want to begin to kind of take a look at the storyline because one of the things that everything sort of hinges on is this issue of resolve. Does Boaz does Boaz really want to redeem Ruth? Is it in his heart? Is he willing to do this? Is this something he's even desirous of doing? Okay, We know he's got the right, although there is one other person in front of him. We know he's got the resources. He's a wealthy landowner. Probably you know retired general in the army or something like that. Uh, he's a very well-known man of valor. You know, I mentioned this to you guys a couple of weeks ago. He would he would have been kind of like the ancient Israel, like what the uh, Kennedy family would be in America, right? Think of the Kennedy family. Everybody thinks kind of like the next closest thing you have to some sort of form of royalty. That was the way a lot of ancient scholars believe Boaz was. He's a very well-known guy. He's from a very well-known family line. He had a very well-known pedigree. And uh, so he's got the uh, right... He's got the resources. Does he have the resolve? The last verse of chapter 3, Naomi gives us kind of her little bit of a spin onto what's actually happening here. Here's what she says. And then she, that is Naomi, replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out for the man, will not rest until, uh, will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So what happened was Ruth went into Boaz. And, uh, you know, I said a few weeks ago that Boaz, Ruth basically proposed marriage to Boaz. Technically, if you really want to get it straight, what Ruth did is she proposed to Boaz that Boaz would propose to her, right? So, so she went into Boaz and was like, hey, I propose to you that you propose to me. How about you ask me to be, you know, your, your wife? You should ask me. That's a great idea. And, 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 and the reality is that Boaz is moved uh, by the fact that she is driven by compassion, So she's asking Boaz to basically spread the hem of his garment, or in other words, marry her, so that Ruth could be brought into a family, so that Ruth can then continue to be a good guardian, good helper to her mother-in-law. And Boaz is blown away by this. He thinks, this is amazing. You are a very selfless, loving, kind, generous woman, and everything that you ask me to do, I'll do for you. And so, but again, he points out that there's another redeemer that has basically, you know, higher privilege or rights before him. So we've got to figure out what's going to happen. So Boaz basically makes his promise. He says, everything that I said I will do, I will do. I will make it in all my effort to do this. Naomi finds out that uh, basically Boaz gives her up to 80 to 90 pounds of grain. And Naomi recognizes this guy will do everything he can in his power to be your redeemer. In other words, does he have, does he have the resolve well, according to Naomi, absolutely he's got the resolve. So with that, what I want to take a look at are basically three ways, three things that kind of demonstrate to us Boaz's uh, demonstration of his desire. Man, I mean, he's, he's super full of resolve. He's desirous to do this. He's willing to do this. Here are three different ways that we can see how his actions are really demonstrated. The first of which... Is found in basically verses 1 through 6. We'll take a look at the wisdom that he demonstrates. There's a, there's a sense of wisdom in which uh, Boaz has to operate. The second thing we'll take a look at is uh, the willingness that he takes upon himself to bear the expense. In other words, like I said earlier, if you're going to be a redeemer, it costs something. It costs a lot of something. And Boaz actually not only has the resources, but then the final thing that we take a look at, um, that he's really got this desire to be a faithful And to bring about and to raise up a faithful and a fruitful legacy. In other words, he's got something way beyond in the future that's in his heart. Beyond just simply a one night stand. Or a simple experience. Or a momentary uh, time of satisfaction. Take a look at that. The first thing that we see though, is he's got this great wisdom. Says this in verse 1 of chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Now everything... In the ancient culture was done at the city gate. Every type of legal transaction, if you wanted to buy a piece of property or sell a piece of property, you did at the the city gate. Uh, If you would imagine, ancient cities way back in the day, they didn't have like police forces, you know, the way we do here in America. Um, And so most cities basically were their own individual entities under themselves. And not all of them had any type of police force or types of soldiers over them if they did. Uh, they were all vulnerable, and so the way that they took away the uh, vulnerability was they built walls around the city, and so that meant that you needed one main gate to come in and out of the city, and the main gate became the main thoroughfare that everybody, trans, uh, you know, came into the city in and out, and it became sort of uh, the main spot that people would do transactions, do business deals, uh, the city elders or the leaders would there sit there, and so if you wanted to get married or you wanted to make a business transaction, you would go to their city gate, and that's what happened. And he says, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, my friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. That's interesting because the uh, narrator of the story never tells us who this guy's name is. And a lot of scholars have uh, thought that maybe the reason for that is because, for one, he's not, he's not a worthy guy. All right? This is the guy that had uh, the right, he had the resources, but he didn't have the resolve. And so, like I said earlier, like to not have the resolve to help out a family member... Uh, makes you just look like a tramp, all right? This is who this guy was. Like nobody cares about him. In fact, the, the author of the narrator of the story wants to demonstrate. It's kind of like this uh, this subtle way of saying uh, this guy is just a nobody, all right? He's Mister No Name. That's who he is. We'll just leave it as that. It's kind of the whole idea. And so he refuses to even mention who this guy's name is. Boaz says to so him, "Turn aside, my friend, and sit here." And he turned aside and he sat down. And then he took the ten. Then he took 10 men of the elders of the city and he said, sit down here. So they sat down and then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, uh, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. If you will not, tell me so that I might know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And, uh, and I come after you, and he said, I will redeem it. So Boaz basically comes to him and says, look, here's the deal. Uh, Naomi is selling the family farm, all right? You know of this guy by the name of Elimelech. Uh, he's our family uh, relative. We know him. So kind of Boaz is having this conversation with this other guy, Mr. No Name. And he's like, look, um, the, the family farm is being sold. Naomi needs the money. Um, you are a redeemer. You have first rights, first dibs and being able to purchase this property. Do you want to buy it? Because if you don't want to buy it, let me know. I'll buy it. All right? Mr. No Name's like, I'm on it. It's a good deal. I'll take it. Um, Again, a little bit more context here. Two things. One is uh, I think Mr. No Name is probably looking at this as a total win-win situation. Here's why. Um, Is Naomi young or old? Really old. Uh, Does Naomi have any foreseeable relatives to inherit the land? None. All right? Is this a good deal or not a good deal? It's a really good deal. All right? This guy's being given basically a piece of property to purchase. And as soon as Naomi dies, guess who gets the full rights to the land? Mr. No-Name. So he's like, of course I'll take this. It's a great deal. The other thing to keep in mind is that, for one, we're not talking about Ruth now. We're talking about land. Some of you might be like, I don't get it. How do we shift or jump from talking about Boaz getting married to Ruth to now we're talking about a business transaction about land? Again, it goes back into the ancient rites and the system of the law. Where part of losing everything is not just simply buying back the property, but also buying back the property that actually belongs to somebody. In other words, it's not enough to just simply have property. It's got to make sure that that property goes to somebody. That God is not just simply concerned about the earth. He's concerned about the earth in that it coincides and is to be the place where God's people are to flourish. Does that make sense? So God cares about the earth because it's his gift to his people. The problem with us oftentimes in our culture is we take the earth and we look at the earth as an object to be worshipped. We worship the earth rather than worshipping the creator. We're We're to enjoy the earth because it's a gift from our creator God. We're to enjoy the earth and steward the earth because it's a gift that our heavenly father who loves us gave to us For us to enjoy, for us to raise our kids here, for us to uh, enjoy God's good creation, to go for a nice hike, to enjoy the beauty that God has created for all of us. And so what goes on here is that uh, Boaz recognizes that this family farm is being sold and he's making an offer to basically, to this other guy, Mr. No Name, to buy the farm back. Uh, Mr. No Name sees this as a good opportunity, offers to buy this. And then Boaz, this is where the wisdom part comes in, he's a pretty sly smart guy. Here's what he says. And Boaz said, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite. It's kind of like, oh, by the way, uh, I forgot to tell you, there's one little caveat. It's, uh, if you buy the property, you also buy the Moabite girl. Which means, here's what this translates to, uh, you have to make your wife and have a baby with her. And it's not just you got to have a baby with her. It's the baby you have, guess who it goes to now? Naomi. Because now Naomi is going to have a name, a family name, that's going to carry on. And so guess what? One day when Naomi dies, guess who gets the property now? The little baby. And when that baby grows up and starts having babies and kids, that property is going to be given to his kids, his next generation. In other words, the idea is that there would be a legacy that continues to go on and on. So... Is this now a good deal for Mr. No Name? No, it's not a good deal. Because what turned out, or it started out to be a really good deal, uh, Naomi's old, she'll probably die very soon. She's depressed. And the sooner she dies, the sooner I get the land, she has no babies. Uh, Boaz introduces now, not so fast, because uh, Naomi also has a daughter-in-law. Her name's Ruth. She's young. Uh, It's kind of funny. He doesn't actually throw into the storyline by the way, she was married for 10 years and didn't have a baby. So in other words, the chances of her having a baby are, are pretty low. He doesn't say anything about that. He's kind of, he's wise, kind of keeps back some information that doesn't need to be go, given out. But at the same time, uh, he realizes that, you know, she could give a baby. She could have a baby because after all, God's the one who opens and closes the womb anyhow. But he does say that, look, if you buy the property, you also get Ruth, which means you have an obligation to have a baby with her. And that baby will end up owning the property someday so he's like ah, you know what i just forgot this isn't gonna be a good deal anyhow it's like it's like he immediately backsteps, backtracks and says this isn't gonna work out verse uh, eight or verse six he says and the redeemer said i cannot redeem it for myself lest i impair my own inheritance take my take the right of my redemption yourself because i cannot redeem it um one other thing i'm going to say about this that's amazing all right when when ruth came to Boaz. And proposed, that he proposed to her, did she say anything about property? Nothing. Here's what's incredible. In that little interaction, when Ruth comes to Boaz and says, will you perhaps ask me to marry you? Um, What ends up happening is this, this radical step begins to move forward now in that Ruth's willing to go out of her way and ask something that's way beyond the normal. She's a Moabite woman. And Boaz really has no obligation to marry her whatsoever. He really doesn't. She's a Moabite. She's not part of the people of Israel. But Ruth goes out of her way and says, I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to stretch the measure of the law. I'm going to go into the spirit of the law. And God says to take care of your neighbor. God says to help out the widows. God says to take care of those that are hurting and suffering and are homeless and have no food. And she goes out on a limb and says, Will you maybe marry me? That would be awesome. Because if you do, then that would mean I would have a covering. And my mother-in-law would also have a covering. And we would be safe. Boaz is like, you're asking a lot of me. But I love your tenacity. And I'll do it. But here's what Boaz does. Does he just stop at marriage? No, but Boaz says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go a step further. And I'm going to buy all the property that belongs to your mother-in-law that was about to sell it all because she couldn't keep the farm anyhow. I'm going to buy that all that property and then that whole transaction, I'm going to get a wife out of the deal and hopefully we'll have a child and that child will go on to raise a godly lineage forever. In other words, I said this a few weeks ago, that when you have strong, God-centered, godly people that are living for the gospel, moved by the gospel, motivated by the gospel, it has this tendency to create that same desire in the hearts of other people. This is the way relationships should be. This is the way marriages should be, by the way. If you're single, which most of you in this room right now are single, some of you are married, but the reality is, this is the way relationships should be. They should be a way in that both husband and wife are working towards building each other up in Christ so that I want to see my wife be the most fruitful beautiful Christian woman I can imagine her being. I want to help her be all that God has intended for her to be. And in turn, her desire is to see me be all that God intends for me to be. And that means, by the way, that I don't want to see my wife sin. My wife doesn't want to see me sin. That means that when there are times when I need to be confronted, she confronts me. There's times when she needs to be confronted, I confront her. And we work together, we lovingly, humbly work together towards building each other up in Christ, trying to help each other grow in our walk with Christ. That's the type of relationship that we see Ruth and Boaz had. It's what Boaz was doing. So we see him operating in this incredible sense of wisdom. The second thing we see is that he has this willingness to bear the expense upon himself. Now, we had already seen Mr. No Name uh, didn't want to accept that expense upon himself. It was too much from the bear. But again, mind you, that when someone's going to be a redeemer, it costs a lot of money. Costs a lot of energy, costs a lot of emotional expense as well. I mean, think about, here's Boaz all day long, waiting down there at, you know, the city gate, trying to figure out all this legal stuff, cut through all this stuff, trying to figure out the best way to be able to make this transaction go forward. And Boaz is working effortlessly, effortlessly trying to get this whole thing worked together at great cost and expense to himself. The third thing that we see is that there's this desire for this joyful legacy that Boaz has. Take a look at verses 7 through 12. It says this, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off the sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a manner of attesting to Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew, he, uh, drew off his sandal. Now, uh, some scholars believe that the reason why they did this is uh, kind of a carryover from the time of Joshua, when Joshua came to the land, led the people of Israel in the land. Uh, Joshua told the people of Israel, says, is everywhere uh, you go, everywhere the foot of your sandal uh, treads, then that piece of property will not belong to you. And some would say that this is sort of an inverse of that, where taking off your sandal, giving it to the other person, is basically a way of saying, I'm relinquishing this this property, this, this uh, pathway of my life, I'm giving it over to you. And so that's uh, where some believe that custom came from. So here's uh, Mr. No-Name, gives his sandal to Boaz, basically saying, I'm withdrawing from the uh, from the desire to do this. And uh, since you're first, uh, you're up next. You can do whatever you want. Verse nine. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, "You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the land, or bought from the hand of Naomi, all that belonged to Elimelech, and that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance." that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among the brothers and from the gate of, the, of, this, of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And again, it's important to understand that God actually cares about the living and the dead. And this whole thing was set up. It's interesting that even the name of Elimelech, Malon, and Chilion were actually brought up. All these guys have been dead now. But... Again, what you're going to see, and again, it might seem very foreign to us, because this is not the culture we live in. We're not familiar with these types of laws or rules. But what would happen is the firstborn child that would be birthed between uh, Boaz and Ruth, that child would then be given to Naomi and would actually technically be her son. And as he grows up, he will actually begin to carry out the lineage that Malon and Kilion failed to carry out. Because they died without having any children. So in other words, what that means is that, in a sense, it's kind of like a surrogate child. This child becomes the one who fills in the place for those who weren't capable of doing it. To carry on the name. But he does so under the name of his father. In other words, this child now that will begin to carry on the family name, he does so in the name of his father, Elimelech. I know it doesn't make a lot of sense, because again, like I said, this is just not how we live But this is the way they did this. And the idea behind this was so that the name would continue to perpetuate itself. Listen to the way this one Jewish writer says this. It's interesting. He says this. It's the father's good delight to hand off to his children and their children his land. Redemption of land is not just about restoring a family's fortunes. It's chiefly about restoring a family's legacy and future promise. This is the meaningless. This is a meaningless act if there are no children Who will perpetuate and actualize this legacy. Redeeming the farm with no hope of family is worthless. So the point of the matter is. Is that God actually cares about the farm. Not because the farm is ultimate. Or the field because the field is ultimate. But because the field was a gift from God to the people. Who for whatever reason lost it. They lost it because they got sick. They lost it because they were sold into slavery. They lost it because of sin, like the people of Israel when they went off to Babylon. They lost it because they turned their backs against God and they began to worship false gods. Whatever the case was, they lost it. Very similar to how originally when God created Adam and Eve. God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden. He says, all of this is yours. Enjoy it. It's for for you to find great delight in all of it But we know the story, and through sin, through rebellion, through them turning their backs on God, through them choosing to live autonomously apart from God, they lost it all. The idea with that is that God intends for us to have life, like I said earlier. He intends for us to live. He intends for us to enjoy the good things that He's given to us. But God also says that if you seek to find enjoyment in a way that's not the way that I designed then you will not find life, you will actually bring upon yourself death. In other words, if you become autonomous, if you say, I don't need God, I don't want God, I'm not interested in God, I'm not interested in His ways, or you begin to worship God's gifts and turn your back on God the giver, what Jesus would later say is that what would end up happening is you will become a slave to these things. You're no longer in control. You become a slave. Slaves ultimately need to be delivered. Now we're back to the beginning of the storyline of Exodus. And this is exactly where humanity finds itself. Broken. And God's good intention from the very beginning was to establish a legacy. It's very interesting because in our culture today, we're a group of people that care about finding, grabbing, taking our best life now. Living it now. Living for it today. We live for the weekend. I'm encouraging you, stop living for the moment, living for the weekend, living for the now, and live to leave a legacy. Live to leave something that will outlive you. Dads, men, guys, you've got to listen to this. Think about this. Because so many men live with the mentality of just simply taking what they can now. Finding a girl that's just simply fun, nice, now, today. And what I'm telling you is that the storyline of the Bible is find women that love God, serve God, that are equally committed to leaving a legacy, marry them, love them, have lots of children, and what you will discover someday is you will be a grandpa, you will have this massive group of kids climbing all over you, and that, Bible is going to say, is actually rejuvenating. That gives life. To see a family that is loving God, serving God, walking with God, joyful in God, is the life that God says is actually a good life. The life that when a person turns 80 years old and has 20 19-year-old girls underneath his arms and thinks that somehow is life, that's not life. That's not life. Life is something that God intends for us to have, but life cannot be separated from God, the Creator. The problem is, is that with sin, we turn away from God, and we find ourselves on a downward spiral path of death. In need of a deliverer. This is what God does. This is one of the reasons why the story of Ruth and Boaz is so beautiful to us, is because we see, really, that this, is, this story is actually situated in the bigger story. Not just simply limited to the Exodus, but even beyond that. That in, like the Exodus... God was going to rescue a group of people from an oppressor. But the oppressor was not limited to a location on the planet like in Egypt. The oppressor, God would say, is the devil. He's out to kill, to steal, to destroy, to take our lives. To keep us living in a place of lies where we believe non-truths about God. We believe things about God that are just simply not consistent with him. And the Bible's going to say living in that place actually leaves our soul barren and lifeless. Sin, the Bible's going to say, is actually enjoyable for a season. This is one of the reasons why sin is so tantalizing, why sin is so tempting to us. Is because it is fun. It is fun for a moment. I've said this before, that oftentimes one of the ways that the devil works is he takes... The most tempting things for us, the things that we would want the most, and he baits the hook with those things. But when we bite and we take the treat that he offers to us, little do we know that we get the hook and now we're caught. That's what sin does. The only way to be set free from that is to have a deliverer. And this is the storyline of the Bible: is that God enters into our world to bring a, to bring a deliverer, like Ruth, who is a foreigner. We're foreigners. Like Ruth, who was barren. We're barren. Like Ruth, who had deadness in her soul. We have deadness in our soul. And yet God sends his son to deliver us, to rescue us, so that we would have a life, so that we would leave and live leaving a legacy that would outlive us, that would go way beyond us. I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, you know what I want? I have two daughters. I absolutely love my daughters. I'm doing everything I can in my might and in my strength and my power to train them up, to love them in the ways of Jesus, to talk about Jesus, to tell them about what type of man to look for. What type of a guy. There's people even in our church that have lived good exemplary lifestyles about this. I've taken their names and it says, girls, I'm gonna tell you about a guy I know in this church, I'll tell you about him. Here's the way that he's treated his girlfriend. That's the way a guy should treat a girl. I just did a wedding for a couple. Uh, two weeks ago, the first time they ever kissed was there at the altar. All right? Amazing. Like it, it, And some people might think that's freakish and that's weird, but you know that at the end of the day, for them, they said, you know what we want to do? We don't want sex to be what defines us. We want love, pure love, to be what defines us. And we know that if we open one door, we go one path, we will consistently go down this path and it will lead to our impurity. We don't want that. We want to be pure, we want to leave a legacy. This is the type of life that God wants for us to live. So that when marriage happens, it's beautiful, it's pure, it's good. So that the sex that happens within the marriage is something that is actually beautiful. It's a gift from God to be greatly enjoyed. Not something in which when it's done you feel filthy or something at the end of the day you feel this is not right. It's not life. But so that we would have God's purity, God's heart, God's life. And then through that, we'd have children that would go and outlive us. And they would be raised up and love Jesus themselves. And go beyond that and raise up grandchildren that love Jesus. And that when we're old, just like Naomi. After Ruth and Boaz have a baby, they come and they bring the baby to Naomi. Just imagine Naomi there. This old widowed lady, well post-menopausal, right, Sitting there, old grandma, just on a bench. Holding this tiny little baby that Ruth now gives to her after all the tragedy, difficulty, hardship, just blowing Zerberts into its stomach and, you know, just tickling its big fat thigh and just life breathed back into this old lady. It's a legacy. I need you to think about that. Are you just living for the moment or are you living to leave a legacy? Are you living to leave a legacy that's going to outlive you? That when you have children, and your children have children, what types of stories are they going to say about you? What type of a life have you lived? How have you lived? And again, at the end of the day, all this information, if you just simply accumulate that and bring that in, and just say, I'm going to try to be better. That's it. I'm just going to do exactly what Pastor B said. I'm going to just live that life. You know what? You're going to walk out of here. You're going to be bummed because you can't do it on your own that's not the gospel the way that the gospel works is the only way to see this that how is how god wants for us to live is to understand that everything that god has asked of us god himself has already done for us jesus comes into this world and delivers us pays a debt for us that we couldn't pay jesus we're told becomes our redeemer All right? Jesus has the right. Because God steps into this world, becomes a man. Is he our relative? Yes. He's become a man. Does he have the resources? Absolutely. God has all the resources. He possesses and owns all things. Does God ultimately have the resolve? Is God willing? Is he truly willing? Look, at the end of the day, we can look at our lives and look at the sum total of all sorts of things that have been going on in your life up to this moment. You can look at the trials, the tragedies, the hardships, the sicknesses, people, loved ones in your life that have maybe died or have come sick, all sorts of hardships that have happened. You may have a lot of questions in your mind. Why is this happening? Why is this taking place? What's happened here? What did I do to deserve this? You can ask all these questions, and we're left with a lot of empty space. We don't always have the answers to those things. But one thing that we cannot say that is is that it must be because God doesn't love us. We can't say that. Because the story of the Bible is that God enters into our world, suffers with us. That's what makes the gospel unique. Religion comes to us and says, Here's what God did. God tells you to love other people. You need to love other people. And if you love other people, you go to church, you read your Bible, you give, you do all these good things, then God will like you back. What most religion basically says. That's not Christianity. That's not what Christianity says. It doesn't matter if that's What you heard from a church or from your great grandma who loved Jesus or anybody, that's not the gospel. That's actually bad news. Because the moment you try to do that, the moment you try to put that on yourself and say, I'm going to go out and love everybody. (laughs) You'll see how futile that is. How good do you do that? All right. You're like, I do it sometimes. All right. You fail the rest of the time. That's the problem. You don't do it consistently. You don't do it all the time. And you don't even really do it that well. So we can't somehow strap that upon our back and say, if I do this, then God will like me. That's not good news. It's horribly bad news. But the good news is that what God did for us is that he comes into our world and he lives the life that we should have lived. He paid the debt that we couldn't pay at great expense to himself through incredible measures of wisdom. This is what Jesus did. The Bible's going to tell us that everything, all of the wisdom of God was hidden in Christ. Everything Jesus did was through this incredible sense of wisdom. So much so that even some of the other New Testament writers would say this. So profound was the mystery of what God had done on the cross by sending Jesus into this world, ultimately to die on the cross. The very angels themselves. I think of angels as being like these... Super bionic beings that just have super mega strength, all right? And and they're powerful, big, monstrous beings. And all the angels, the Bible is going to tell us, sit around in absolute awe that, I can't believe it, God, King of kings, the Lord of all glory, became a man. They don't get it. The Bible tells us even the angels desire to look into these things and they can't figure it out. They can't comprehend. They can't wrap their big angel brains, ethereal angel brains around it. It's too big for them. It's because God's wisdom is at work and God's wisdom even surpasses that of angels. And finally we all ultimately see that really at the end of the day that it's God's desire that to be this fruitful legacy. Jesus tells this parable, he says, A man goes into a field, he discovers a treasure in the field, and for the joy of this treasure that he finds, he then goes out, sells everything that he has. In other words, incurs upon himself great expense to purchase the whole field. Not for the sake of the field, but for the sake of the treasure. You guys, the reality is, is this. I, I can't say it any better than John 3.16. For God so loved this world that he gave his son for you do you know that do you know how deep how rich how great god's love is for you do you understand that i mean naomi turns to ruth and she says Boz will stop at nothing until he accomplishes all of this he will stop at nothing until redemption is final Even greater than Boaz, we see Jesus, who stopped at absolutely nothing. Not scourging, not mockery, not people turning their backs on him, not suffering, not even the crucifixion, the excruciating crucifixion of the cross. None of that stopped Jesus until the moment on the cross, he screams out, it is finished. And that's Jesus' way of saying, the redemption of my people is. Has been paid in full. It's complete. It's done. I want you to see today that you guys have a God who, yes, created you. We've turned from him, and yet in relentless love, he's pursued us. Didn't stop until ultimately our redemption was made sure. That's what Christianity is, guys. It's not beyond that. It's way more than that, and there's a lot of other amazing nuances that go into that, and it's beautiful, but it's not less than that. This is what God is. This is what he's done for you. This is how much he loves you. This is how much he reaches out to you to draw you in. This is why we love Jesus, because of what he's done for us. I'm going to pray. We're going to wrap this up, and what I want to do right now is we're going to have a time and an opportunity to just worship and to just pray and to sing to God. The reason why we sing is because singing is what happy people do. Singing is what bummed out people do too, all right? I mean, most songs on the radio or on iTunes are written about one or two things. Either one, you're really happy because you got a girl. Or two, you're really sad because you lost that girl. And Christianity is like, I'm really happy because God found me. Or I'm really bummed because even though God found me, my life's really hard right now. I don't understand everything that's going on. But I know I'm still found. I'm trying to make sense of it. We're going to sing. We're going to repent. If you're here today, you're not a Christian. for you are a Christian, maybe there's things in your mind that are just, that you have a view of God that's not consistent with himself. Those are things the Bible's going to say we've got to repent from. We've got to turn from. We've got to confess to God and just ask him to wash us and cleanse us. We'll also worship by partaking of communion. We have it in the back, and I encourage you guys to just thoughtfully, prayerfully consider who you are in Christ and what God has done in you and through you, and then welcome you to come partake of the communion. If there's things in your life that God has forgiven you, but maybe you're withholding forgiveness from somebody else, my encouragement to you is repent from that. Ask God to wash you. Ask God to help you to walk and step and sync with the gospel. That's what the gospel is all about. Here's what God's done for you. Here's what we now get to do for God. Guys, at the end of the day, this whole sense of love that we're called to walk in, it's not a duty. Love is our destiny. Love is the language of the world to come. That was written by a God who reached down and rescued you. Do you understand that? Do you understand the weightiness of that? I want you to feel that. And if you are having a hard time in your heart even now conceiving that or conceptualizing that or feeling that, I'm asking you in the moment, in the quietness of your heart, just ask God to make that so real to you that we would be moved to love and worship and honor Him back and to love others beyond that. God, just thank you for the cross, and we respond in worship, in love, in song, in confession.